Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. It's Christmas time again. Time to celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. But as I look around, I know there are those of us here this morning who are not necessarily looking forward to Christmas because of certain situations or events that have taken place over the past year or over the past several months. There are those among us who have lost loved ones and all of us know how important it is to be with family around the holidays. And so there will be an empty chair. Some of us have had reversals of fortune, lost jobs. Jobs have moved out of the area and so material resources are tight and we would not have all that we would want to have in order to express our love and appreciation to other people, especially at Christmas time. Families are more and more becoming fractured, where those within the family have gone their separate ways and for whatever reason hearts are broken expectations are low and joy is at best at a minimum I have a word for all of us Because all of us face issues, all of us face crises, all of us face difficulties and hardships and loss. But Christmas is not about all of this. That's what we've made it. But that's not what the desire of God was in giving us this season. There are a number of texts in Scripture that speak about the birth of Jesus. The Old Testament prophets spoke in anticipation of the coming Messiah, while the New Testament apostles spoke of the reality of the Messiah who has come. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. There is a passage in Psalms 
that's quite striking. Psalm 72, verses 10, 11, and 12, where the psalmist sings, The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. Presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer you gifts. Yes, all the kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. Did you know that passage was in the Old Testament? Where there would be kings who would come to bring him gifts and presents. Well, that's there. There are a multitude of passages in the Old Testament concerning the coming of the Christ. This morning I want to direct your attention to Isaiah chapter 9. Well, chapter 7 and chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 9. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, please. Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 9. Stand in honor of God's word with me, if you will, please, as we read out of chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before... The child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good. The land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. And then chapter 9, verse 2 and verses 6 and 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and he, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is the word of God, and we ask his blessing upon the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2... The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. That verse makes little or no sense unless you examine Isaiah chapters 1 through 8. 
I'm not going to read Isaiah chapters 1 through 8. But if you understand what's being spoken of in those chapters, then you can understand the promise that is given in chapter 9 and verse 2. In those chapters, God called Isaiah to preach judgment upon Judah because of the sin of the Judeans, which God likened unto Sodom in Isaiah chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. God... speaks through his prophet and he tells his chosen people, he tells the sons and daughters of Abraham, he tells the ones whom he has called to be his own out of his great love for them that they have become like Sodom. And for that reason, the Lord through Isaiah, has declared to the people that he is sending judgment. He is sending judgment. Now, let me stop for just a moment because there is confusion in Scripture about the difference between judgment and chastisement. Judgment is condemnation and leads to to destruction. Chastisement is corrective and leads to restoration. When God judges a person or judges a nation, it is because their sin is so egregious that he determines that that person, that nation, will be destroyed. But when God chastises a person or a nation, it is out of his great love for that individual, his great love for that nation, that he sends a corrective measure into their lives so that they will understand their sin, repent of their sin, turn back to God, and he can restore them. Let me say this and understand this, please. God never judges those whom he loves. He chastises, but he never judges. Judgment for those whom he loves is past. Jesus took that judgment on the cross. But he will allow chastisement to come into our lives to correct us. So understand that, please. What was the sin of Judah that moved God to destroy his chosen people? And you may very well say, well, didn't he love Judah? Didn't he love Israel? Didn't he love the 12 tribes? Yes, he did. And he called them to be his own. But they have forsaken him. They have turned away from him. They have disowned him. 
And the only corrective measure that God can bring to the sons and daughters of Abraham is to remove the dead wood so that the wood that is still alive can flourish again. And we'll get to that in just a minute. So what was the sin of Judah that moved God to destroy his chosen people? Turn back to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. And looking at verse 8 and following. Isaiah 5. Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field till there is no place. Where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In my hearing the Lord of hosts said, Truly man's Truly many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and an omer of seed shall yield one ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night, till wine inflames them. The harp and the strings, the tambourine and flute, and wine are in their feasts, but they do not regard the work of the Lord nor consider the operation of his hands. Therefore my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished and their multitude dry up, dried up with thirst. Therefore Sheol has enlarged itself. Sheol is the realm of the dead. Therefore Sheol has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure. Their glory and their multitude and their pomp and he who is jubilant shall descend into it. People shall be brought down, each man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. Then the lambs shall feed in their pasture, and in the waste places of the fat ones strangers shall eat. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity, and sin as if with a cart rope. They say that say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to men mighty and drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from righteous man. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the shaft, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Six woes pronounced upon Judah. And by the way, the word woe, both in the Old Testament spoken by the prophets and in the New Testament spoken by Jesus upon the Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees is a very strong word which means a denunciation and indictment of God's great displeasure. It means that the individual who receives the woe from the prophet or from the Christ will also receive the wrath of God. 
It's not a slap on the wrist. Six strong denunciations are handed out to Judah for, for the sin of greed. First of all, the sin of greed, enlarging one's estate with no regard for tribal rights of the people and to the detriment of their neighbors. The second is drunkenness and revelry from the early dawn to late at night with no regard for the work or for the worship of the Lord. The third is presumptuous sin and sin compounded by sin with an attitude of no fear for the wrath of God. When you read this passage, the, the people of Israel are saying, Lord, you're going to judge us for our sin? Bring it on. Bring it on. We don't think you are going to pour out your wrath upon us. We don't think you're going to judge us for our sin. It is an attitude of disregard for the justice of God. Presumptuous sin and sin compounded by sin with no fear of God's judgment. In fact, they dared God to judge them. The next woe, moral perversion, calling evil good and good evil. Calling truth a lie and calling lie a truth. Calling light darkness and darkness light. And then there is the sin of conceit and arrogance where godly wisdom is shunned and rejected and personal opinion is exalted and championed. And the last is corruption in which justice is perverted. The criminal is justified and the innocent is criminalized. And God said for these sins, I have prepared armies from Syria and from the northern ten tribes of Israel to march upon your borders and to utterly destroy the land and its people. Isaiah described the coming judgment of God as the darkest midnight without a morning dawn. The darkest midnight without the morning dawn. Where God's people walk in darkness continually and they live in the land of the shadow of death each and every day. Now, before you think this is the worst Christmas sermon you've ever heard, <laughs> let me draw your attention to three truths about the character and the purpose of God and the ultimate significance of a child that was born who would bring the people of God hope. We read about it in Isaiah 7, verse 10 through 17, but I want us to go back to that segment again. Isaiah 7. Without going back to verse 10, in verse 13, through the prophet, the Lord says, Hear now, O house of David, 
Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The Jews in Judea had committed, as I stated a while ago, egregious, flagrant, scandalous sin against God year after year after year, defying God's written law and, can, and, and ignoring God's continual plea to repent of sin as he sent prophet after prophet after prophet to confront Israel in her sin. They were a people walking in spiritual darkness and walking and living under the judgment of God. And yes, God did respond to this by sending prophet after prophet who exposed the people to their sin and announced God's judgment upon it. They didn't pussyfoot around. These prophets were scathing in their denunciation of Israel for their sin. They didn't back down from the priests. They didn't back down from the kings. They didn't back down from the rich. They stood face to face and toe to toe and denounced God's judgment upon the sins that they had committed in his sight. They were a people living in the shadows of death. But the first truth I want us to note about God in all of this is that He is, first and foremost, He is the God of love and grace and mercy. Amen. First and foremost, our Lord is the God of love and of grace and of mercy. His wrath is secondary, not primary. It is secondary. He only expresses his wrath when his love is spurned, when his mercy is rejected, and when his grace is ignored. But even as we have read in these passages, it is the desire of God to humble a sinful person or a sinful nation for the ultimate purpose of raising them up again in honor. Look at chapter 9 and verse 1. Isaiah 9 and verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed as when at first... Uh, he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily upon her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. Assyria and the northern ten tribes of Israel had already been on the move at the time that Isaiah is preaching these words to Judah. They have already conquered the northern territories of Judah, Galilee, and uh, the surrounding area, the land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali. 
And they're on their way down to Jerusalem and to the southern part of Judea. And all of the people in that region are frightened out of their wits that God's judgment is going to destroy them all. But through the prophet, he says no. He's going to extend grace. And he's going to extend mercy. Why? Because he loves you. He does not desire to completely wipe you off the face of the earth. His desire is not to utterly destroy you, but to save you. His purpose at this point in time is to humble you. So you will recognize your sin, repent of your sin, turn back to him, and he will raise you up in honor. The Lord humbles those who exalt themselves in sin, in flesh, and in worldliness, so that in being humbled, God can exalt them to godliness and holiness and righteousness. It is not God's desire to destroy people and nations, even though he has to because they do not repent. It is his desire, however, to ruin sin so that he can save the sinner, to dispel our darkness so he can bring forth his light. To temper our sorrow so he can restore joy in our spirit. To show compassion on the impoverished so that he can provide his abundance. And to break the chains of our enslavement to sin so he can set us free. In chapter, two, chapter 9, verses 2 through 5, that's exactly what he says. The people who walked in darkness have seen the great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadows of death, upon him a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. Isaiah is saying, if you will repent, this is what God will do to the Assyrians. This is what God, the, this is what God will do to the Syrians. This is what God will do to Israel, the northern ten tribes. You will be victorious. You will gain the upper hand. God will deliver you from certain destruction. There is a second truth that we can learn about God in all of this. And that is that he provided the means whereby his purposes will be accomplished. And you know what? Just sitting back and thinking for a minute or two, God always does that. He always does that. Before he brings judgment, he always gives warning, doesn't he? Read your Bible. Before God sends judgment, He always gives warning. He gives us, by His grace, an opportunity to recognize where we've gone astray and to turn around and come back to Him. And God always provides a means whereby when the judgment comes, there is an opportunity 
to become victorious over it. It reminds me of the passage of Scripture that the Apostle Paul gives us in Corinthians when he says, God will not lay upon you more than you can bear, but with temptation he will provide a means of escape. Problem is, most of us get so caught up in the temptation we don't look for the escape. But he always provides it. And through Isaiah, the Lord God is telling the people of Judah the judgment is on the border, but God has made provision for you to survive it. He provides the means whereby his purposes are accomplished. And the means whereby the purpose will be accomplished is in the birth of a child. The birth of a child named Emmanuel. Now, sometimes, and I know because I'm a human, sometimes I know that we get so caught up in our sorrows and our disappointments, our discouragements, our frustrations, we get caught up in our anger, our disappointments. We get caught up in, in um, all of the things that stir our spirit and that fog our mind and that are, are, are out to defeat us that we forget about God. We forget about God. And so God said through Isaiah... There's going to be a child born. And this child is going to remind you because the name Emmanuel means God with us. It also means God among us. I'm going to send a child. A child is going to be born and the name is going to be called Emmanuel to remind you that even though you're in the midst of a crisis situation, even though the enemy is on the border, even though God's wrath is being ready to pour out on you, God is still with you. He has not forsaken you. He loves you. And He will continue to love you. When Israel was enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, God provided the means whereby their freedom would be secured through a humble husband and wife, Amran and Jochebed, a child was born, and his name was called Moses. Through Moses, God's wrath was poured out upon Egypt, the enemy of God's people. But God's love and grace and mercy was shown toward Israel. And God just like the child was drawn out of the river Nile by Pharaoh's daughter, so God through Moses drew Israel out of Egypt and set them free. It was God's provision through a child that was born. In the days of Isaiah, Israel was thoroughly enslaved in sin and had been since the days of the Exodus. For 700 years plus, the children of Israel lived in open rebellion against God. 
in idolatry, intermarrying with the pagans, making alliances with heathen kings, signing treaties with those individuals who would turn against them to destroy them. Even though God warned them not to do these things, they did them anyway. And so for over 700 years... God's people lived in open rebellion against God. God sent Isaiah to tell them that he was fed up with it. He was tired of it. And he would not tolerate it anymore. Judgment is coming. But he also said that he would provide a means whereby the remnant of Israel would be saved. And I, I wish I had time to talk about that a little bit, but there is no time to deal with that this morning. A child would be born to unknown parents, and he would be called Emmanuel, Isaiah 7.14. And from the birth of this child... The recognition of the sovereignty of God would dawn once again on the Jewish people in Judah. And some of them, not all of them, some of them would recognize, they would hear the words of God through the prophet, they would recognize their sinfulness, they would repent of their sinfulness, and they would turn back to God. And they would be saved. That's called the remnant. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 9, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 9, this is where it, Isaiah begins to talk about this. And that, like I said, I don't have a time to expound upon this, but that's okay. We'll come back to it some other time. Notice in verse 7, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 7, Your country is desolate. He's already speaking to Judah. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in the garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city, unless the Lord of hosts... See, it all comes back to God. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant we would have become like Sodom, we would have been made like Gomorrah. In other words, if God had not brought to himself a remnant of those who acknowledged sin, repented of sin, and turned back to God, they would have been utterly and completely destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. And Isaiah follows that idea of remnant all through his book. When you read Isaiah, one of my favorite books of the Old Testament, when you read through Isaiah again and again and again, he speaks of God's judgment upon a sinful people, but he also speaks of the salvation of the few who will turn to him and be saved. Well, now, there's another thing that I just need to touch on about Old Testament prophecy. Quite often, if not always, in the Old Testament, when a prophet speaks of a coming Messiah, the prophecy is dual, dualistic. He will give them an immediate 
he will give them immediate fulfillment of that prophecy, but he will also extend that prophecy out to a future time, to a later time. And this is one of the this is one of the times when we need to see, we need to understand. And he does this for a reason. First of all, when he sends the prophet and the prophet gives a prophecy, if it's not fulfilled in a certain amount of time, then the people are not going to believe him. He will have no credibility. In other words, if a prophet comes and says, this is what the Lord God says, and God is going to do this, 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 the people have every right to say, prove it. And God is more than happy to prove it. But in Messianic prophecy, he will give an immediate fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. And that's the case here. That's the case here. There is a child that's going to be born. His name is going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. How do we know? How do we know that what the prophet Isaiah is telling us is true? Because there was a child born. And through that child's birth and through the name that was given to that child, the people had hope that God would turn around his judgment and save them. Now, some believe that the child was Macher Shalal Kashbad. Say that five times. Quickly. Macher Shalal Chashbaz. He was the son of Isaiah and Isaiah's wife. And his birth was the sign that God would save Judah from the alliance between Syria and the northern ten tribes. How do we know this? Because the name translated means the spoil is quick and the plunder is fast approaching. And this was in reference to the alliance of Syria and the northern ten tribes that were threatening on the northern border. Name the child, and God told Isaiah to name his child this, because no mother in her right mind would ever name her child a name like this. But God said, you're to name this child, spoil is quick and plunder is fast approaching. Why? Because I am going to deal with the alliance that stands against you. And from this name... Now, you say, well, his, they were supposed to name him Emmanuel. No, the name was a reference to what God is really all about. The name that they gave him was a reference to what God was going to do. The name Emmanuel is reference to who God is and what God is all about. I am still among you. I am with you. And what am I going to do? I'm going to turn the northern lions away from you. Why? Because God knew that there was a remnant yet in Judah that it would repent of sin and turn back to him and he would not let them perish in the midst of the conflagration that was to come from his wrath. Same thing with Methuselah. Those of you who are familiar with Enoch who had a son Methuselah. You know in the days of Enoch the People had become so heathen, so pagan, so sinful that God regretted in his spirit that he ever created man. And he decided that he was going to wipe away the earth 
from mankind. He was going to destroy all mankind from the face of the earth. But he found a man named Noah who was righteous. And he said, I want you to build a boat and you and your family and the animals will get into the boat and they will be saved from destruction. Well, how did they know that that was really going to happen? Because God gave them a sign. Enoch's son was named Methuselah and the name Methuselah simply means when he dies, judgment will come. And it's interesting to note that even after 969 years, the year that Methuselah died, the flood came. So the, child, the, the people on the face of the earth had 969 years to prepare for the judgment of God because that's what the name Methuselah meant. When he dies, judgment comes. So some believe that the child spoken of here was the son of Isaiah and his wife. Others believe that the child that Isaiah is referencing to was Hezekiah, the son of the wicked king Ahaz and his godly wife Abiah. Now even though Hezekiah's dad was a wicked, wicked king, his mother had great influence over him and he became a righteous king. One of the most righteous kings to ever sit upon the throne of Judah. This righteous king Hezekiah, when he became king, he brought about a complete revival and reformation of Judah. He brought Judah out of paganism, out of idolatry, out of perversion, out of corruption through him. Judah began to call upon the Lord once again and thus averting total destruction at the hand of the Assyrian army. And we don't know if the child in reference here, because he doesn't give us the name of the parents and he doesn't give us the name, only the reference to Emmanuel, God is still with us, God is still among us. We don't know if it was the child of Isaiah and his wife. We don't know if it was the child of Ahaz and Abiah. Whomever that child was that Isaiah declared would be born as a sign to Judah, that child would remind the people that despite the coming destruction, God would be with them. And God would save a remnant from them. They would survive and they would be restored to a position of honor and prosperity. And that's exactly what happened. There is a third truth that we can learn about God in all of this. And that is that the child, God would provide for the immediate salvation of the remnant of Judah is a foreshadowing of the child God would provide for the salvation of all mankind. Look at chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 again. Because this gives us the far-reaching effect of the promise of God. Not just the immediate effect of a child that would be born to the locals, but of a greater child that, we, that would be born. Chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, 
the government will be upon his shoulder, which would make you think that was probably Hezekiah. Okay, I can accept that. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Well, Isaiah was a great king and he was a smart dude, but this far exceeds the wisdom of mankind. Mighty God, well, that means he's divine. Uh, Hezekiah was not deity. Father of eternity. I know your texts say everlasting father, but the Hebrew is father of eternity. The one who brings eternal life. Prince of peace. This is a greater child that Isaiah is referring to. A child whom we know to be Jesus the Christ. These are all titles given to the one who would ultimately come to save mankind from sin and from the judgment of God. To Joseph, the angel Gabriel said that the birth of Mary's child would happen so that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. That's Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Jesus is indeed Emmanuel, God with us. Now, he wasn't called by that name, but that's who he was, and that's who he is. He is God with us. He is our wonderful counselor, the one who gives extraordinary and miraculous wisdom and knowledge, and the one who brought about the plan of God through which you and I could be saved. He is the mighty God. In his ministry, Jesus performed mighty acts of God, miraculous signs of healing and resurrection, feeding the hungry, rescuing those in danger, delivering demonically oppressed people, and ultimately defeating Satan upon the cross. Only God could do that. No human being can do that. Only God could defeat Satan. And he did so through his son on the cross. Jesus is the Father of eternity. He is the Father of eternal life. John three fourteen through 16, you know the passage well. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, not temporary life, but everlasting life. John 5, 24, Most assuredly, Jesus said, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John chapter 6 and verse 40, And this is the will of him who sent me, Jesus said, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up on the last day. I could go on and on and on, but you know that the Scriptures teach that only through Jesus Christ has God the Father extended to us love and grace and mercy that would allow us to be forgiven of all sin, avert the judgment of God's wrath upon our sin, and give us eternal life in fellowship with Him forever in His kingdom. Amen. Only Jesus could do that. And He did. 
And he did. He is the Prince of Peace. The word peace in Hebrew is shalom. Typically it's used as a greeting and as a benediction among the the Jewish people. But it means more than the absence of conflict or strife. The word shalom conveys the wish for prosperity and for wholeness. For prosperity and for wholeness. And in having these things, a person experiences peace and rest. Was it not Jesus who said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, Come to me. All you who are all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How many of you this morning long for that rest? Rest from anxiety, rest from heartache, rest from loneliness, rest from not having enough, rest from conflict, from strife, from all of the negative things in life that just crush you. Jesus said, I've come. I've come to give you shalom. I've come to bring you prosperity. I've come to make you whole. And in making you whole and prospering you, you will have my peace. You will have my rest. So in closing, to those of us who dread the coming of Christmas, because we've suffered much over the past year, because we are alone or have no one to share the celebration of the season, or because our resources are meager and we can't afford to be frivolous in spending, remember the words of Isaiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen the great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadows of death, upon them the light has shined. What is that light? Nah, it's not a what. It's a who. It's a who. Jesus is the light of the world. The Apostle John tells us in his prologue that he is the light and his life is the light unto men. God has given us his Son. Jesus Christ. And through His Son, we have the multiplied promises of God that should cause us to rejoice in the celebration of His birth. Jesus is indeed the reason for this season. David, come and lead us in a song. Let's stand together. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, 
His name is called Just our voices. Sing that again as we get ready to leave. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, his name is called Emmanuel. He's God with us. Revealed in us, His name is called Emmanuel. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that in Him we have all that we need in life and in eternity. Life can be a real bugger. It can be so disappointing. It can be so hurtful. It can be so burdensome. But thank you, you have sent unto us a child who grew to be a man and went to a cross so he could bear those burdens for us. And while we still live in the flesh and we are still subject to the hurt and the harm, the attitudes of others, spiteful words, criticisms, rejection, We have you because you are God with us. And you have promised you would never leave us or forsake us. And you have said nothing in heaven, on earth, beneath the earth, past, present, or future can ever separate us from your love. Bless us, Lord, as we leave the house and as we go out into a world that needs to know Jesus. May we not get so caught up in the Christmas carols, the secular Christmas carols, or in the shopping and the wrapping and the preparing of food and making plans for visitation and blah, blah, blah. Father, may we remember that Jesus is the reason why we have this time. So let's share Jesus while there is yet time. Because it's in His name I ask. It's in His name I pray. And all of God's people said, Amen Amen and Amen. God bless you and have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. 
If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on Him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to Him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.